Tēnā koutou katoa, no mai haere mai, and welcome to the Auckland Writers' Festival. My name is Toby, and this is Toby. <laughs> uh, this year they've decided to program the Writers' Festival in alphabetical order, completely through the, through the roster. I'm Toby Manhai, this is Toby Walsh. A few people have said to me in recent days, oh, you're, you're interviewing the AI guy, aren't you? But I've done due diligence backstage, and I'm highly confident that he's a human being. Um, <laughs> There's sort of a, a daunting amount that we could cover in this session. We won't get to it all. We will do, ses we will do some questions at the end. Um, so, you know, think about anything you might have. I'd really love it if you've never asked a question before at one of these sessions to, to, to um, break your duck today. Um, I'm aware as well that there will be a great range of familiarity with this technology in the audience. Um, some of you will, 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 be, will be very literate in all of it, and, and others of you won't have seen it. And so I thought it would be fun, not because I'm underprepared, but to see <laughs> if I could get ChatGPT to start off the session for us. This is, this is um, let's see if this works. What should we say? Uh, please, always like to start with being polite. Please. <laughs> write a biographical note about Toby Walsh to introduce an Auckland Writers apostrophe there, Festival <laughs> session with him entitled The Morality, oh, sorry, Morality of AI. Oop, there we go. Okay. Oop, there we go. Toby Walsh is a renowned artif Australian artificial AI research author and speaker, recognised for his expertise in the field and his contributions to the discussion on the ethics and morality of AI. Born in 1962. Wrong. <laughs> I'm not that old. 1962 <laughs> is wrong. Oh, what's happened there? That's too long. <laughs> Do it shorter and with a joke. Okay, this is better. Introducing Toby Walsh, the AI ethics expert for the Auckland Writers Festival session, The Morality of AI. Get ready to delve. <laughs> Get ready to delve into the ethical complexities of AI with Toby, where the boundaries of technology and humanity intertwine. With Toby's insights, we'll navigate the twists and turns of AI ethics and find out if machines can tell a good joke. <laughs> Join us for an intellectually stimulating session that'll leave you laughing and pondering the profound questions of artificial... Hi, Toby, welcome. <laughs> oh, well, uh... Uh, uh, put that away, put that away. I've got, I've got to say, I'm, I'm happier that I've got a real Toby here. <laughs> Can a machine tell a good joke? Uh, jokes are about exchanging human experiences. And I don't think at the end of the day we'll care so much about machines telling us jokes. It's interesting that it got that wrong. Yeah, because it? it's, it's, it's been trained to say the sorts of things you find on the internet. It's been trained by literally giving it the internet. Um, and it's very good at repeating the sorts of things you have on the internet. And mm. um, you know, the, the best explanation I've, I've heard of it is it's the perfect mansplainer. <laughs> it will sit there and confidently tell you things 
Um, and the problem is that they're nearly true. That was nearly my birth date, but it was wrong. Um, and it was said with great confidence. And so uh, that is somewhat worrying, I think, that we'll end up being drowned in this sea of half-truths and near-truths. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I want to come back to a bit more. I, I, I got it to do me uh, last night. And it got my date, birth, date of birth wrong, too. Made me older than I am. And it said, this is, it said that I co-authored books such as the New Zealand Book of Lists and Dopey Dog. <laughs> That's what it said. And I Googled Dopey, there doesn't appear to be a book called Dopey Dog. No, no, but you're going to write it. It's, so it's, <laughs> it's in your future. Wow. The destiny machine. Destiny. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, every time you ask it the same question, it's slightly random. Yeah. It will give you back a different answer. So I asked it once for my biography, uh, and it said I gave up AI. I wasn't obviously doing too well. Yeah. Uh, and I started a career playing poker. <laughs> well, for, I mean, funny, that's sort of plausible, because I do have friends who have done that. Right. And it said I'd won the world championship in poker, $7 million. I think I'd have remembered. <laughs> It's, I, I love that that's the, when it gets things wrong, that it's called hallucinating. That's what, I love that phrase. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a nice, lovely phrase, but it's also profoundly disturbing because it suggests, you know, who are the other things that hallucinate? It's humans. Mm. It suggests it's human when it's not. It's, to hallucinate, you have to know what's true and what's false to be able to make things up, but it doesn't know what's true or false. It's got no understanding of the world. It's, mm. it's, it's just repeating the sorts of things that you say on the internet, and we're easily seduced, easily fooled by that. What is it doing? It's a chat GPT. It's, a, it's called a large language model. It's, I think it's a neural learning model. Tell us, what does that mean in, in simple terms? So it's, I mean, the, I think the easiest way to understand it is if you're typing on your smartphone or typing a message or something, mm. there's autocomplete. It knows how to finish the word. There it's been given a dictionary of words and the frequency of the words, and it says, what, you know, what's the most probable way of finishing APP? It's probably Apple. Um, but it's done that on a greater scale. It's not been given a dictionary, it's been given the internet. And so it can finish not just the word, but it can finish the sentence or the paragraph, repeating the sorts of things that you see on the internet. Um, and that's, that's why it makes stuff up. I mean, it's just saying what's probable, not what's true. I mean, it, it does make things up, but mostly it gets stuff right. And mostly it sort of, you called it mansplaining, it's sort of got the kind of confidence of a, of a, of a first or second year student who hasn't read the books, you know, <laughs> yes. but knows the right phrases and kind of... It has. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. You know, 75%, 80% of the time, it says the right thing. Mm. Um, you know, and where it, it's things that, that are said, you know, mostly said correctly on the internet, it will say, it will repeat them very correctly. But the, where issues are more controversial or um, more d doubtful, then it will often just say the things. So, that, so, so it's described as deep learning, but it's not really deep thinking, is it? I, I had never heard the words, the word chat GPT six months ago. I think a lot of us hadn't. When did, when did, the world of AI attract your attention? When did you become absorbed in it? Well, it's, it's appropriate that we should be, you asked me this question at a book festival because it was as a young boy when I was reading books. Uh -huh. I was reading science fiction. I was, I was enamored by 
science fiction at a very early age, and I read Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. Um, and then it, it dawned on me that I was reading about a future that was actually not very far away. And I was very lucky as a, as a young boy, I got given a computer at a very young age. And I realized, well, wait, I could start building that world on these computers. And that's, you know, that's something that I could imagine happening in my lifetime. And, um, and it's now starting to happen. It's now starting, I mean, that, that dream, I think, is turning into reality. And we're waking up to the idea that it is going to be all, you know, a significant part of our lives. And there's immense useful things that those machines could do. And there's immense, you know, harmful things. Yeah, that's the, the classic problem with, with AI, like, like with many other technologies, is it's entirely dual use. There's positive uses of the technology, there's negative uses. So an application of AI is facial recognition. You can use, get a computer to recognize your face. And there are good things you can do with that. So there's a, a wonderful story. A couple of years ago, back in, um, in India, in, in New Delhi, they, the police went into um, hundreds of different orphanages and found nearly 3,000 children who had been separated from their parents. It's like the movie Lion. It's a big, crowded country like India. It's easy to, at a young age to get lost from your parents and then, if you don't remember where you live, not to be able to find them again. And so they reunited nearly 3,000 children with their parents. So an immense good that was done by using facial recognition software. But at the same time, you go and look at what's happening in China, the persecution of the Uyghurs, with facial recognition software to track their every movements. And you realize immense harm, immense evil that's being done with exactly the same algorithms. Mm. And you, I mean, the, the, book is, the book is called Machines Behaving Badly, but, it's, but in that case and lots of the others that you talk about in the book, whether it's uh, policing, sentencing, a range of areas, it's not really machines behaving badly. No, it's it? not, no. The, it's, the, the, the book is mistitled, I have to admit. It's, 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 it could be states or it could be it's corporates. It's largely corporations behaving badly. Corporations behaving avariciously. Yes, yeah. largely. Uh, but that, I don't think that would have sold so well. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, do we, um, what do we mean by artificial intelligence? It's one of those terms that kind of can mean everything and nothing. It's sort of nebulous in a way. What, 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 what do you mean when you talk about artificial intelligence? What's in and what's out? <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the funny joke about AI is that it's all the things we can't yet solve on a computer. It's, it's very much a moving target. So, um, But it, uh, broadly speaking, it's trying to get computers to do things that when humans do them, we say they require intelligence. So that's um, a trifecta of perceiving the world. So that's being able to see the world, recognize people's faces, understand what they say. Um, reasoning, so we do a lot of, you know, when we think and um, solve problems, we reason, and then, um, th then learning. That, you know, if, when you were born, there's lots, most of the things you can do today weren't things you could do when you were born. You couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't do maths. Mm. Most of those things you learnt, and so significant part of artificial intelligence today is machine learning, the part of, AI where we get computers to learn to do things. One of the uh, differences between when I learn something and when a machine learns something is it doesn't have the emotional apparatus that I have very deep in my case. But 
but it, but what it, what it, what it, what it does have is the ability. Does that not get in the way? <laughs> it has. You know, Jeffrey Hinton, who was the, yes, the Google guy, yes. who who was an expert in AI, called one of the godfathers of of artificial intelligence. Um, it's a, a, a lovely bloke. I mean, uh -huh. funny enough, he's actually the great great grandson of George Boole, who invented Boolean logic. Ah. That is the foundation of the computer. I mean, it comes from a fantastic wow. line. Oh, well, there's genetics for genetics you. Genetics for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, he, one of the things that he said, and one of, we'll come to some of these stories that are around at the moment. One of the reasons that he left Google, because he wanted to be able to speak freely about the, you know, the looming threats that it presented, was that whereas, so my intelligence, when I learn something, if I happen to learn something and want to then disseminate it, share it with other people, that takes an awfully long time. When a computer learns something, all the other computers can learn it. It's a completely different, the pace of the process. Which, which is why we're gonna be surprised. That's why computers are advancing so much more rapidly than we perhaps expect, because it doesn't correspond to our human experience. Mm. You know, if, if I learn to ride a bicycle, um, I can give you a few tips, but not, I, there's not much I can really explain to you. You're going to have to ride, learn to ride a bicycle, fall over as many times as I did. Mm. Um, but whereas with a computer, I just have to load that code that knows how to ride a bicycle onto the other computer. So they're actually much better at us at learning. They're much, it's much better learning. And it's, and it's being done on a planet-wide scale. And we actually already have this. So if you have a Tesla car, it's learning stuff when you're driving. It sees a you know, shopping trolley comes into the road in front of it. It learns how to avoid running into shopping trolleys. Well, that night, that, that experience is then shared with Tesla, who then will download it onto every Tesla in the planet. So we're used to learning things for ourselves. We're not used to learning planet-wide. Mm. And so we are um, going to be surprised. And then it's like a ratchet. So you know, imagine if we could learn like computers, we'd be able to compose music like Bach. We would know every language under the sun. We would know how to you know, solve physics problems like um, the best physicists on the planet we would have you know, the supremum of all the possible skills that any human had on the planet. That's probably getting a bit worried now, I suspect. Oh, we can, we can, we can make it more scary shortly. <laughs> but the, the, I just that, what's staggering to me is that speed, that pace, that scaling, that we've seen even in ChatGPT, which we looked at before. This stuff is happening fast. It is. Um, it's being driven also by huge investments in money. I mean, we're mm. seeing billions of dollars being thrown at it and trillion dollar industries being, being constructed in front of our eyes. Um, and there's, I mean, that's, that's you know, part of the challenge, part of the problem here is that you know, the tech companies are throwing caution to the wind because everything is to play for. Google might not exist in a year's time. Can you imagine that we will stop saying, oh, I'll Google that, I'll Bing that. Mm. <laughs> the, whole, the whole idea of the way you Google information, one yeah. Google's information, could be gone. It could. Right? Well, what, what, when you Google, you, no one actually says, you know what, I want a page full of links uh, with a lot of adverts at the top. Yeah. <laughs> Which is how that multi-billion do dollar company is yes. mostly financed. Yeah. Um, and the, and, and the, the Google search experience actually has gone backwards in the last 10 years. It's, it's no better than it was 10 years ago. In fact, in many respects, it's worse. So, 
you know, Google has sat on their hands quite, quite a lot. Um, when you're searching for something, you want an answer. Well, if one of these tools, you could see it answers questions. Um, so we might, first of all, leave Google and go to Bing or whoever's offering us the best search experience. I, I remember when, when oh, do you remember AutoVista? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, ba back in the day, 20 Ask years. Ask Jeeves, I remember. Ask Jeeves, yeah. yeah. But back in the day, there was, you know, every year or so, you change search engine because yeah. a better experience came along. And then I remember when AutoVista came out, I said, oh, that's good enough. I'm never going to I never have to bother to change again. Yeah. Then Google came and I changed. But for the last 20 years, we've been stuck with the same provider. Um, and it's not a rich experience. It's actually got worse. And so, you know, maybe we will go to another provider. So that's the first existential threat that Google has. And the second is, even if we stay with Google, even if Google get barred their version of ChatGPT to work and, and we stay uh, in the Google uh, sphere of influence, it f undermines their business model. 90% of their income comes from us clicking on links. It's advertising. And then they, pay, they charge people for us to click on their links. Well, if we got the answer, we're not going to click on a link. And so they're going to have to think you know, again, well, how do we get money out of this? Yeah. Um, and they're pouring a lot of money into it to work it out themselves, aren't they? I mean, I mean just as a as sort of an example of that, if you, as a visitor to Auckland, had time free between 10.30 and 1 p.m. tomorrow, you could say, I like art and movies, write me a plan for a 600-word plan or a bullet point, and it would do that yes. in seconds. Yeah, and it might be wrong, <laughs> but... It would do a pretty good... It's pretty good at those sorts of things. Yeah. It's pretty good at... It would, draw the information in, it would look at what opening hours are for the museums, what special exhibitions are on, and it would do a pretty good job. Um, these are going to be really useful tools. As, as the, all of the stories that have been, I was saying to you before now, you know, just every time I turn on the news bulletin, I, it seems as though there's a, an AI-related story on there. We were talking about how the writer's strike in the US, AI was part of that. Jeffrey Hinton we just touched on, leaving Google. Sam Altman, who was the creator of ChatGPT and is the CEO of OpenAI, appeared at a Senate hearing just in the last couple of days. And he said, if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. I mean, this is going right at the <laughs> coalface. It feels like something has happened at the moment in terms of, something is happening in terms of appreciating the potential. Something's changed in the very recent time, do you think? It has, because the, the technology is leaving the lab and turning up in our lives. Mm. And I think that's, that's the fundamental difference, the fundamental challenge that we face here today, which is that we've never had technologies that you can get into the hands of so many people so quickly. I mean, it's no, no surprise that ChatGPT was the fastest growing app ever. So when it was released the last day of November this last year, it was in a million people's hands at the end of the first week, 100 million at the end of the first month. And today, because now it's part of Snapchat, it's part of Bing, it's in the hands of billions of people. When other times we've introduced technologies into our lives, it took time. The Industrial Revolution, it took 50, 100 years to get steam engines around the world. Um, the telegraph took a long time to, get, to, to con wire up the world. This is something where you can, you know, Snap, uh, OpenAI can release a new product, and it's already in the hands of a billion people. You were telling me before it's on Snapchat now too, which is... Yes, there's, a, there's um, a, a version of ChatGPT called My AI, 
You can have a conversation with it. Who needed that you needed to know, you needed to have your own AI? Um, but it's also, you know, somewhat disturbing because Snapchat is, you know, aimed at 13-year-olds. I've got a 13-year-old daughter. And a journalist registered for Snapchat pretending to be a 13-year-old girl um, and then asked my AI for advice about how to fool his parents, her parents, sorry, mm. um, that, um, so that she could go and meet a 30-year-old man who had contacted her who wanted to have a fun weekend. Um, grooming, grooming her, and the, the uh, chatbot was giving advice as how to disguise this from, from her parents. Um, at the idea that this technology is put out there without any yeah. safeguards, you know, yeah. I'm not only an AI researcher, a father of a 13-year-old, and I'm, you know, I'm shocked and disappointed and concerned that harms are going to be done. And even if there are only some small harms, we go back to the point that it's in the hands of billions of people. Multiply small harms by a billion, and you can have really quite significant consequences. And all of that, that threatscape or, or whatever, is what inspired a group of people to uh, write an open letter in the, a couple of, you know, maybe a month ago. Um, with uh, more than a thousand people signed it, there were a, a lot of experts. Mr. Hinton. There, there was um, Mr. Hinton, uh, uh, Steve Wozniak, the Apple founder, was there, and a lot of, a lot of respected people, as well as Elon Musk. And, <laughs> and they... Um, there was a comma and there. And they warned in that letter of profound risks to society and humanity and called for a cessation of research for six months and so on. You didn't sign that letter, and I want you to tell us why not. I, I didn't sign it, although I share many of the concerns mm. that they have about the risks. Uh, the, there were two problems with the letter. First of all, it called for a six-month moratorium, which I thought was hopeless, the idea that we'll fix these problems in six months, mm. or the idea that the tech companies will stop for six months, both of which hopeless ideas. And then, the, and, the, and the second is that also the letter discussed the existential risks that we're going to have superintelligence, and that was part of the concern. And I think actually the risks are much more mundane, the way that our democracy is going to be un undermined, the way that our children, 13-year-old children, are going to be harmed by these technologies. Um, we have saw this with social media, and it's like it is rather sort of depressing to think we're just repeating the same mistakes we made with social media. Mm. You know, did we not learn anything from, mm. from the disaster of social media, the way that it's harmed you know, body image amongst young girls especially, um, the way that it, it was used to corrupt the American presidential election, the Brexit referendum. Um, you know, there's great things. Social media does great things, but equally there are significant harms. And we're just rushing headlong again into this next technology, which... I think potentially could be even worse. So why didn't you sign the letter? Just because uh, I mean that, that seems like a good argument for signing a letter in a way. Well, the, but the but the letter was also crying wolf about this idea that we're going to have because of the catastrophizing. The catastrophizing, and I think if you cry wolf uh -huh. too often, then you know there will come a point where we, maybe we have to cry. We have to okay. have to say there's a wolf at the door. Um, the machines are getting too intelligent. Okay. We, if we say that now, when they're not, then I mean, no one's going to listen. But, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, maybe not quite wolves at the door, but he says his, his mind has been changed in recent times about the potential for those things to come much more quickly. I mean, you've written, you, you had a book called 2062 about yes. the achievement of 
uh, artificial general intelligence when the sort of super intelligence starts coming. It is, I mean, people who, intelligent people have started talking about extinction events. You know, people, yes. and, and, and is that, so do you think that's histrionic? A little bit. I think intelligent people think a little too highly of intelligence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the powerful people in the planet don't tend to be the intelligent people. I mean, just look at, you know, recent American presidents, <laughs> recent British prime ministers. I, 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 you know, there's a, there's a vast number of examples I could call upon which does not suggest that intelligence leads to power. Indeed, actually, I would like a bit more intelligence in power. I think that would actually do, be a good thing. But um, there might be the power in the... In the I mean, uh, we, we might elect idiots. That might be a pattern that you've <laughs> identified. But the, the corporates that we talked about before are populated by some extremely intelligent people who are motivated by generating funds for shareholders. And they're smart. I mean, they're, surely that's a, that's, a, that's a threat. Whether or not it's an it is, but that, existential but, threat. But, but that's a threat we face today. Mm. That's the threat that we have still not fixed. That is why we have a climate emergency. There's, there's uh, 100 corporations that are responsible for 70% of carbon emissions. Right? You know, at the end of the day, we were sold a big lie. It's not your own personal consumption. It's not your carbon footprint calculator that you need to, need to worry about. You, we need to go and picket um, the doors of ExxonMobil and the like and say, you need to stop doing this. This is destroying the planet. Um, it's, it is those corporates, their values that are not aligned with human good. Let's go back to politics. Sorry about that. <laughs> but we... I mean, there's a, a, a good lesson to, to be learned there, I think, which is to say, you know, the modern corporation, we forget, is an, an accident. It's an invent, a human invention. We invented it in the Industrial Revolution. We invented it so that we could profit from the machines, so that we could invest in capital. We, people could take risks. They could use um, the, the, the inventions that were coming out then to make our lives better. And the, the modern corporation did a pretty good job of that. But we're going through another industrial revolution. And so I do wonder if we need to reinvent the corporation so mm. that it's now better aligned to our values, to, our, to human flourishing. When you talk about those, those, those changes, the sort of epochal moments and technolo technological changes, where, do you, where does, this, where does the, the AI, AI sit in terms of those step changes in the, in the history? I, th I think we're going to look back and, and this is going to be as foundational as the Industrial Revolution. Oh. It's the invention of the steam engine, it's the invention of you know, the, the, the taming of electricity. This is going to be. We, we liberated our muscles in the Industrial Revolution. Well, we have the potential to liberate our minds. We, we can amplify what we do. Um, we can sit back, hopefully, and, and say this was you know, a, a great moment where we generated great wealth, we generated great value. And, you know, then the other thing to think about, you know, we should learn from the lessons of history. It doesn't repeat, but, but you know, we, we've made some really significant changes to the way we run our society mm. to profit from that. We introduced unions so that workers were, weren't, you know, the, the, all of the wealth didn't go to the owners of the production, but were, the, the wealth was spread around. 
We introduced labor laws so that we stopped sending children down the pit. We introduced universal education so people were educated for those new jobs. Universal health care so that people um, were protected. Um, universal pensions. We made some pretty radical changes to the way we ran society so that we profited from it. And I think we're going through another transformation and perhaps we're going to have to think of pretty radical changes, things like universal basic income, to support people to, so that we transition through that. Um, the thing that worries me is if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, there was some sort of enlightened Victorian gentleman who largely did that. Um, and, you know, I'm looking around saying, do we have those enlightened Victorian gentlemen uh, around today to do those things today? I was going to ask you why it is that you're not working in Silicon Valley and earning squillions of cryptocurrency, but you've probably just answered that question, <laughs> I guess. How do you get on with the, when you go to Silicon Valley and espouse those sorts of ideas? It's a weird place. I mean, they're drinking some serious Kool-Aid there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it does fill me with some disquiet and, and nervousness that, that most of those people don't realize that they actually got to where they are because they were lucky. That they were in the right place at the right time and they were very lucky. And most of them feel that they've got some special knowledge. I mean, so for example, how can it be that the most important town square that we have today, Twitter, is run, run by a billionaire whose ideas on free speech are a bit unhinged. But how did the regulator allow that to happen? Mm. I, think, I think we're, we're we just, we have to wake up and say, we have to apply the rules, existing rules, antitrust rules and um, product rules and liability laws to these corporations. The EU has tended to be ahead of other parts of the world in some of this, you know, with the GDPR and privacy and so on. At the moment, it's got at least a, a draft, I think, of an AI, AI uh, regulatory framework, whatever it is. Is that encouraging? I know that one of the things they're talking about is uh, a ban on impersonation. That is to say, if, a, if an AI tool is not a human, it needs to tell you that. Um, we need it in law now. Yeah. You know, you've got an upcoming election. Um, we're already seeing examples of these technologies being misused to impersonate people. Um, and that does give me concern. That's a very real and immediate threat. It's, um, it's the idea that you can deep fake anything now. And you know, the beauty of the technology is being democratized. Right? These tools are widely available. You can, you can access them very easily. Mm. Um, but, you but you can make you know, um, real harms with these things because you can't unsee th things that you've seen. So if, if you saw the picture of the Pope in a white puffer jacket, which was this meme that went there, what, what was, you know, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's a really s smart person who knows how to use Adobe Photoshop who's, who's made that. Mm. Turns out someone literally sat in front of Midjourney, one of these tours that you type text, it makes a photorealistic image. They just said, picture of the Pope in a white puffer jacket. And it went viral. Um, the pictures that you may have seen, the pictures of Trump being, a, being arrested by the NYPD. He wasn't arrested by the NYPD, but that was enough. I mean, they're very realistic looking pictures. That's enough to start a riot. That's enough to, to pervert our democracies. It's, and it just, it's just 
filling with steroids all the stuff that we've seen already, isn't it? All the disinformation threats and so on. And the other, the other part of it is, it occurs to me that if, you know, the Donald Trump um, Access Hollywood tape in which he bragged about sexually assaulting somebody, if that, if that happened now, he would simply say it's not true. He has said it's not true. He said it's a deep fake. Has he? Yes. <laughs> That particular that, 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 that particular tape. I mean, the, the, and the, I suspect his supporters believe him. So it's, it means that you can de deniability becomes superpowered. You can do what Steve Bannon and the whole, uh, you know, the, the Putin's uh, Russia has advanced, which is flood the zone with bullshit. You yes. Know. I mean, it's that, that which is Bannon's quote, right? That's Bannon's quote. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, wh what else? So as you say, we've got an election and. In, in, in less than five months now. What are the other things that, whether it's through deepfakes, disinformation, other, the other open AI hazards that we should be alert to? So, I mean, the, f the fundamental problem is that humans can be hacked. So at the end of the day, we're easily manipulated and persuaded. Right? The advertising industry is predicated on this fact. Right? They don't spend billions on advertising. If it weren't for the fact that we could be persuaded to do things, um, by advertising. Um, and unfortunately, artificial intelligence is the perfect tool to do that, personalize and do it at scale. A and so um, we're easily persuaded to do things that aren't in our own interest. Um, and um, we are going to be, you know, we, already s we already started to see this with Cambridge Analytica. We already started to see with mm. this with the misuse of social media. But as, but as an example of what you could do, and this is literally with technology that exists today at almost a very little cost, you can make a Trump bot. And indeed, there is already a Trump bot. I mean, you, you take all his speeches and all his tweets, you train it on, on, and it can say things that sounds very like Trump. I mean, it's not a very high bar. <laughs> you can connect that to a Trump cloned voice. You only need a few seconds of someone's voice. You can mm. clone their voice. Sounds just like the orange man. Now you can ring up every voter in the United States. You can have a two-way conversation where Trump persuades them to vote for him. At modest cost. I'm surprised um, none of the parties have started to do this. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, an anti-Trump supporter, I could build a Trump to do the same thing and ring voters up and say things that would persuade you not to vote for him. I'm struggling to find out what Trump could say <laughs> that would <laughs> diminish his support from his supporters, but presumably there are things the Trump bot could say yeah. that would undermine yeah. his credibility. Again, it's the, you know, robocalls in elections have yes. been commonplace for a long time, but as you say, they can now, we could set up the Toby party and and have well, we're the right people conversations. to do that, and, <laughs> and use, but then, and then you chuck disinformation in the mix, yes. chuck all of that, and that technology you're saying is already It is, already and, and we're going to end up in a world in which you are not going to be able to tell human voices from robot voices. It's going to be being swamped by the amount of information, misinformation. We're not going to be able to tell what's true and false anymore. I mean, it's already, you know, for, true and falsity is already pretty fungible ideas, but yeah. it's going to become completely fungible. And, and then the other thing that people don't realize, unfortunately, is that the world that you see on the internet is unique to you. It's the world that those tech companies think is going to appeal to you, the things that you're likely to buy, the prices. I mean, every price that you see on the internet these days is personalized to you. 
It's not just, I mean, we're used to the idea that when you book an airline ticket, that price is priced individually to you. But, but every price now is being uh, tailored to what they think you are willing to pay for. And the internet is just the version of the world that we're not sharing. I mean, that's the thing we used to, used to be with media, that we would share these common ideas. We would see the same shows. We mm. would see the same news. Um, even if you read online a serious newspaper, you're still seeing only the articles that that newspaper thinks you're interested in. So what's the best way to think about this then in terms of both the, 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 the near-term threats that you identify and cover a lot of the bias issues in the book and the, some of the, the medium-term, longer terms. What is the, is it, is, do we approach it like, like drugs, like pharmaceuticals? There's, there's, well, you know, I mean, it came it up is, in the it Senate It is a hearings. drug, it is a drug. Well, it, but the, but the talk about, the, there was some talk about licensing and testing. I can't remember if it was Altman that tested that, maybe they would resist that, but, but like, should we, you can't put a drug onto the market without it getting approved by the regulators, whether it's the FDA or the MedSafe here or whatever. Should we have that, or is that too tight? Should we, I mean, should we be doing clinical trials for AI tools before we put them out? I mean, what is it? What is the best way to look at it? What is the... I, I don't think there's one solution, but, but I think we should. I th the strange thing is that when it comes to people's physical health, we've, we've, we've developed some pretty robust mechanisms. You talk about, about um, you know, drug approval. There's very solid ways that we go around making sure that, that drugs don't kill people, don't harm people, um, and but we don't worry, strangely, about people's mental health like that. Mm. We only worry about their physical health. And, and these tools, provably, do have an impact on people's mental health. There was a, there was a beautiful um, experiment done to look at how social media changes people's level of anxiety and, and, and sense of self-worth. So when, when Facebook was introduced, it was, it was rolled out. It started out in, in Harvard and then it was introduced to a few other elite schools, and then more universities, and then opened up to the world. And that was over a number of years. And so you can actually um, look at the spread of Facebook as it spreads across the universities and, then, and the world. And they ran annual surveys of, of people's, looking at people's anxiety levels and people's mental health. And as Facebook hits your university, your mental health and anxiety goes down. Very clear correlation. Now, obviously, correlation is not causation, but it's just so black and white that as this, as this tool rolled out over, over universities and into our lives, um, our mental health, our anxiety, especially amongst uh, young women, diminishes. Mm. It, it hasn't made us happier, it's made us less happy. And we have to, you know, I think we should, there's lots of law we should existingly apply. For some reason, we got sold a, a this lie by the tech companies that somehow regulation doesn't apply to them. It doesn't apply to them because the digital space is something special, it's not physical, they're these international corporations that cross borders, um, and that we shouldn't apply regulation to them because that's going to stifle innovation. And I think we've discovered in the last five years that not only um, that you can and you should apply existing regulation, you can because it works, and you should because there are obvious harms being done. And it's not going to stifle innovation. Indeed, I mean, you know, I've got you know, people, who, you know, people in Silicon Valley I know very well. My colleagues have gone off to work, and they will tell you over a beer. They'd like some more regulation, because at the moment, 
it is a race to the bottom. They will do things not because they choose to do them, because their competitors are going to do them, so they'll better do them as well. And that's the difference between maybe social media when, when that came around, is Sam Altman was telling the Senate, he was inviting it. He was inviting. Yes, yeah, so I think it's, it's pretty... cynical about that or...? No, no, not at all. I think if, if the CEO of the company that's introducing this technology yeah. into our lives says this should be regulated, politicians say this should be regulated, um, lots of you know, mental health organizations say this should be regulated, this should be regulated. I mean, <laughs> how black and white does it have to be? Just to lift the mood a little, I'd like to talk about, <laughs> about killer robots. <laughs> um, some of the most interesting parts of the book are, are about autonomous weapons. It's a very appealing thought in some sense when it comes to clearing mines, or even just, um, you know, we would we, ra rather robot soldiers are killed than human being soldiers. You know, that seems, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a, an appealing idea. It's a nice but naive idea. Uh -huh. <laughs> Explain why. Well, sadly, um, you know, the, the idea that we, we can get humans out of the battlefield and we can just have robots fight other robots. Unfortunately, the sorts of people we end up in conflict with don't sign up to those sorts of rules. Conflicts happen in towns and cities, in and amongst civilian populations, and sadly, increasingly a lesson of the last uh, 50, 100 years, increasingly against civilian populations. And so um, we can't expect, you know, if, if it was going to be my robot against your robot, well, we wouldn't even have to get the robots out. We could just decide it with a game of chess <laughs> or a game of tiddlywinks, you know. But, you know, people are not going to sign up to those sort of rules. So it is going to be against, you know, women and children. It is going to transform the way that we fight war and not in a good way. And what is this? I mean, the, there, are, there are lots of high-level discussions. There are lots of people who are really committed to try and finding, I guess, the kind of the Geneva Conventions of, of, of autonomous weapons and so on. Where is the, what is the state, state of play there? Uh, so actually this week at the United Nations in Geneva, there have been um, week-long discussions going on about them. I've, I've had the uh, privilege of going to, to, to speak at those, uh, those discussions now half a dozen times. Uh, unfortunately, there are nations like New Zealand, thank you very much, that have, that have been pushing forward to the discussion saying, uh, there are technologies that we've regulated. We've regulated chemical weapons, biological weapons, blinding lasers, cluster munitions. There's a whole host of technologies we decided. They're repugnant ways to fight war. We've got plentiful ways to fight war. We've got plentiful big sticks to defend ourselves with and, and, and to, to prosecute war. We don't need to do some of these really cruel, evil, terrible things. And we should add you know, killer robots into this list. So there are countries like New Zealand that have been promoting that, that discussion. Unfortunately, they're getting huge pushback from a few players. Mm. Um, unfortunately, like. Russia, China, the United States, United Kingdom. Um, in indeed, um, I've, I've now actually been banned uh, indefinitely from Russia because I've spoken too uh, openly about um, how we see in the Ukraine today warfare being transformed by these sorts of technologies. And um, you see, you know, every now and again, you see a war where, where the nature of war changed. In the First World War, we saw introduction of machine gun and tanks that, again, transformed war and not in a good way. We saw the Second World War, the introduction of the long-range bomber 
and the nuclear weapon that was delivered by the, that long-range bomber that again transformed the way that we could fight war. And I think I'm almost certain that historians of war will look back at the Ukrainian conflict and say, oh, that's when we introduced drones and autonomy and artificial intelligence into the battlefield and look at how that's changed the way we fight war. Okay, I want to go to questions in a moment, but I think it's important before we do it, before we finish our conversation, for me to uh, encourage you to give us a, a beam of optimism. Tell us, <laughs> tell, us, tell us what are the things in the world of, of AI that excite you at the moment, that you see out there and you think this is, I don't know if it's quite cure cancer level, but what is it, what is it that we oh, see is, out there? Oh, it is, it is curing cancer. What is the exciting stuff? Cancer will right. be cured. Here we go. Right, so think of any disease, any, any illness that befalls humanity. We have a technology here that, that can potentially, or not even potentially, almost certainly help us remove that, eliminate that from our lives. And then the, as an example of what we can already do, I was reading um, not long ago, paper that just, an AI paper that just blew my mind away. Mm. So the researchers in the UK took some AI tools. They took the UK gene bank. So half a million people in the UK have had their, their genotype scanned. We can read your DNA. It costs a couple of hundred dollars um, to read your, so you can, you can get the hundred thousand, couple of hundred thousand SNPs the genetic letters that make you, you, and not me, um, even if we're called the same name. <laughs> and um, they've, in that gene bank, they've not only got all of the genotypical information, or the letters that make you, they've also got all the phenotypical information, all about your medical history, the history of disease in your family. Um, so there's gigabytes of information. Mm. Humans can't look at that. We just don't have the attention span to seed in that sea of information the, the signal. Um, but AI can do that. AI has no problem at all looking at that. And they can now tell you at birth, or even in utero, um, from your genotype, how tall you are going to be to within an inch, your hair color, your eye color. Yeah, not, maybe not very important things. But they, already we know various important things. We know, for example, whether you're going to be susceptible to bowel cancer. Third most common and deadly form of cancer, um, mostly, mostly treatable, but by the nature of bowel cancer, by the time you spot it, it's not, no longer treatable. So we now can say at an early age whether you're actually susceptible to bowel cancer. No, it's, not, it's not minority report. There are certainly there are yeah. envi there environmental are issues all around. There are environmental issues, you know, just because you have the you have that genetic propensity doesn't mean you're going to get sure. bowel cancer. There are triggers, environmental triggers that we, we, we don't know about that are probably going to uh, trigger it. But already at the moment, we can now say, okay, well, we can now monitor you. We can now do the blood tests and, and the like and, and so that we can spot if you are going to get bowel cancer at an early age. And so it can be treated and you can be saved an untimely death. And name any other cancer, name any other uh, disease, Alzheimer's, uh, whatever it is, we have the potential now to read your, read your genotype. We can write your genotype. CRISP, CRISPR is, we can actually change your genetics so that we can actually write that out of your genes. Um, and so we can eliminate, potentially in the future, every disease. Well, that seems good. <laughs> Let's do that. I, um, uh, questions, there are microphones at the front of each aisle. One at the back here and upstairs, and I'd love to hear from you. Who's, who's there now? Just pipe up. 
Is it really intelligence, artificial intelligence, or, or, or a super-intelligent processor? I mean, is it going to plateau at some point? Ah, that's an interesting question. Um, there was, there's part of me says that it would be really conceited to think that we're as smart as, we, as you could possibly be. We happen to be the smartest ape, and we've used that to good effect, to, to invent all the things that we've done. But, um, you know, there is... There's no reason to suppose, there's no laws of physics, at least that we know of, that says that human intelligence is the supremum. And there are many reasons to suppose that machines could be smarter than us. They, they think at, at, at electrical speeds. You know, we, we are forgetful, or I'm increasingly forgetful. Um, we've got limited amounts of memory, constrained by the size of our, our skull. Our skull can't be any bigger because we couldn't get out of the birth canal. Um, computers have an unlimited memory. Um, we're limited by the 20 watts of power that power our brain. Our brain uses uh, more energy than any other organ in your body. A third of your energy in your body goes to power your brain. That's all we can afford to devote to that very expensive organ. Um, computers have none of those limits. So there's lots of reasons to suppose that we could build machines that could be smarter than us. And indeed, history of science has surely taught us some humility. Uh, the sun did not go around the earth. Copernicus taught us that. Um, we're no different from the apes. Darwin taught us that. And maybe artificial intelligence will give us a bit of humility that we are, um, you know, just happens to be stewards of this planet and there are other things that could be more intelligent than us. Knowing what you know, um, and as a mother, I'm really intrigued at what your dinner time conversations sound like with your 13-year-old daughter so that she embraces technology, fosters curiosity, but does so uh, with caution and uh, with a critical thinking mindset. Well, th th thank, you, thank you. Thank you very much. A, a, a really important question. Uh, unfortunately, it begins with, can you get off the device, please? We're having dinner. <laughs> Is that her talking to you or the other way? That's me. <laughs> me talking to her. Um, but you're right. I'm, I think we are running an interesting and potentially risky experiment with our young people today and, and how that's going to change them. Um, I'm heartened when I talk to them about their values, about their values, about um, recognizing um, people's different sexuality, pe um, recognizing. Um, things like bullying, their values about the climate and the way that we're destroying the planet. But equally, I'm also really concerned about the dopamine hits that we keep on giving them through, our, through technology. And I do think um, that we are going to look back at social media, which is driven by AI these days, and think about it like we think about tobacco and alcohol. We don't let teenagers have tobacco or alcohol, because we know you need to develop your own views and it's very easy to, be, to, to end up in a bad place. And I think we're going to realize that with social media in the future and say, maybe you have to be 16 or 18 before your young formative mind is exposed to these really powerful, persuasive technologies. Thank you.